You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So as many listeners know, whenever I see something that's in print, a post, a book, or an article, I oftentimes will reach out to the person who wrote it and try to get them to come onto the podcast. Well, over the last few weeks, there's been a lot written about the Semex decision from the National Labor Relations Board, bargaining orders that are culminating or coming about as a result of it. And one of the articles I saw a couple days ago was written by an attorney by the name of Carrie Burke, who's a partner with the law firm Safarth Shaw out of their Atlanta office. And he wrote an interesting post on LinkedIn about a new bargaining order that the NLRB is trying to impose upon an employer. In any case, I reached out to Carrie, and fortunately, he was able to come onto the podcast this afternoon and share more information about it. So without further ado, here's Carrie Burke with Safe Our Shot. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Carrie Burke, Safarth Shaw, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Sure. Well, as I was saying before I hit the record button, I oftentimes will see something that somebody wrote and invite them onto the show and just kind of pick their brain. And, and you did a post a few days ago, I think. I've got it actually on another screen talking about the Semex decision and a case that was arising out of it. So I thought maybe we could have kind of a broader discussion and then go to what this instant case was. Yeah, no, that, that works for me. Happy to, happy to start wherever you want to here. So let's kind of do, uh, for the listeners, kind of a refresher on Semex and what's happened with Semex, if you don't sure. mind. No, happy to do that. So Semex, you know, I've had a couple discussions with some trade groups about it. In my view, it is sort of the biggest change in labor law over the past 50 years, certainly since I've been alive. Um, and so, you know, the, the case basically arose um, at a cement mixing factory. 350 folks were trying to organize. And sometime in December of 2018, the union filed a petition. They put forward about 200 authorization cards for their 350 members of the putative bargaining unit. In response, as often happens, the employer started a counter-programming campaign, and a few months later in March 2019, the union ultimately lost the election. Now, Peter, I think the critical piece to remember here, and, and what makes CMEX such an outlier in my mind is, you know, the purported ULPs filed, uh, committed, excuse me, by the employer would have most likely resulted in a bargaining order under the prior regime, so under Gissel Packet. Because in this case, you had threats of discipline or termination for wearing union insignia, threats of discipline for voting yes, threats to close the facility, which, as you know, is a really big one, right. and then discharge of, of several supporters. And so, you know, the ALJ actually ordered a, a rerun election, which was a bit surprising, and the general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, appealed and said, not only should there be a Gissel order here, but we, we need to bring back Joy Silk, which was this scheme from the 40s and 50s that essentially allowed unions 
to present majority status and they would have to be recognized by the employer. Now, the board ultimately did not go that far, but they almost have made it even easier in my mind, I think, for unions to get recognized here. Because the, what they've held is that, you know, to the extent a union presents what they refer to as majority support, and at this point it's completely unclear what that even would entail. It could be authorization cards. I mean, reading the decision itself, it suggests to me that a union member could just say, we've got 50 plus 1% and you need to recognize us. Now, in response to that demand for recognition, the employer can do a couple things in response. The first is they could just go ahead and recognize the union. Second, they could go ahead and say, you know what, we're gonna test your majority support claim. And they have to then within two weeks file something called an RM petition, which is basically an employer initiated election petition where the employer is testing the union's claim of majority support. Now, the, the third option is doing nothing and then refusing to bargain and letting the whole refusal to bargain process play out. As the board mentions, if you go that route, you do so, quote, at your peril. Now, the, the tricky part, though, and I think what a lot of employers are going to really have a hard time with in summer is if the employer decides to file the RM petition and goes the election route and they commit an unfair labor practice that requires setting aside the election, the petition is going to be dismissed and the employer is going to be subject to a bargaining order. So it's so, basically just completely done away with the Gissel scheme and replaced it with a hair trigger bargaining order mechanism. Let's kind of break this down a little bit for the listeners. You and I will, we can talk shop, but I think some of the HR folks may be a little bit confused. So Gissel packing, that was a 1964-ish decision somewhere in there. Yeah, that, I think it's a, a, oh, sorry, go ahead. That So that established the bargaining order, right? If an employer were to commit some egregious offenses during an organizing campaign. and That's right. So the Gissel packing decision was basically, shall we say, neutralized? I don't know if that's the correct term or not, but basically it's now much easier to get a bargaining order. That, that's right. I mean, the, the bargaining order under Gissel was not the snap response to the commission of unfair labor practices in the course of an election run-up. Rather, there just had to be, there had to be significant and sustained unfair labor practices such that it was nigh on impossible that a rerun election would have been fair or free of coercion. Now, though, that, that standard has gone out the window, really. So is it any unfair labor practice, or is it typically when there were campaigns, if there were some slips, some things that would have been ruled objectionable conduct, it could get you a posting of a notice, it could get you a rerun election, and worst-case scenario, a bargaining order. So yep. my understanding is that they have eliminated that second rerun election. Well, for the most part, the board did give itself an out in Semex and said a bargaining order is not the only remedy for ULPs committed in the run-up to an election. But my review of the decision suggests to me that that is going to be the first go when ULPs are committed. You might, to the extent, 
to use your words, there's a slip by a rogue manager, as an example, and they, you know, say something they shouldn't have said, and it's very, very limited in scope, and that didn't impact the bargaining unit employees as a whole, you might get a rerun election. But I think for the most part, employers ought to expect a bargaining order will be the typical remedy here. Right. And this is going to get kind of wonky. And I don't know if the standard still stands, but there used to be a mechanism as if a, say, rogue supervisor said something that was not proper, we'll just Mm -hmm. put it that way, that the employer could cure that unfair labor practice during an election process or Mm -hmm. in the run-up to an election. They They could cure it with the employees. Is that still possible or is that just out the window as well? So if I'm advising an employer and we learn about an unfortunate statement that's made, we would absolutely attempt to cure, particularly now. I don't think that that was really ruled on in CEMEX. And I think that as a matter of course, employers ought to be thinking about whether it makes sense to try and cure in the run-up to an election. Yeah, Because I think that's a good defense to have, even if not against the board, at an appeals court to the extent you go all the way up there. Yeah, that's a good idea. I, you know, I'm sorry I went wonky on you, but... <laughs> so, no, that's all right. So the article that you wrote is in reference to an election that took place 18 months ago where the board is now saying under CEMEX to bargain. And is that... I'm trying to understand is it wasn't really stated, and obviously if it's clients, you shouldn't name their names, but is this a case that the election was certified or is it still in the objections process? No, so, so the election was certified and the, and the union lost 11 to 17. And ultimately what's happened in those 18 months since is there's been, well, no, excuse me, let me, let me back up. The, the election is still in the objection process uh, and, okay. and the parties are still litigating over whether or not there should be a rerun or a bargaining order or something else entirely. So I, I think the important part of that is CEMEX is retroactive. Like mm-hmm. this happened 18 months ago, the union lost. And part of what you had referenced in the article was that, in fact, the majority of the employees have turned over. That's right. I think about 25 of the 38 employees who voted in the initial election are now gone. And so, you know, CEMEX and a bargaining order really doesn't make a whole lot of sense here. Because, you know, as I mentioned in this article, you'd really be foisting union representation upon a group who never had the opportunity to vote on it at all. Right. And at what stage is this? Is this still in the argument stage at the NLRB or is this going beyond? Yep. So it's it's currently before an ALJ who asked for supplemental briefing in light of SEMEX. Okay. And then at that point, it'll eventually wind up back at the board? Yep, I think that that's right. I mean, I th- I suspect it will wind back up to the board, and it'll be an interesting test case to see what the board does with the retroactive provisions of CEMEX, because I think that the employer here in its briefing did a really nice job saying, you know, this was 18 months ago, and it would be manifestly unjust to apply CEMEX retroactively here for a variety of reasons, the primary one being that the majority support issue. So here's an oddball question. Would it be possible for the, say, 25 of the 38 employees that are now there, the new employees, could they file basically a, a rescission? It wouldn't be a rescission because they didn't sign cards. Sorry, I'm thinking outside the box here. But So could they say that we don't want the union, essentially? That, that's a really good question. 
And I mean, I think would be a really interesting thought experiment if, you know, the, these 20 or these 38 employees now just said, you know what, let's set this aside and, and we're going to, you know, rerun an election and see what happens. Or, I mean, you know, the, I think the ultimate order here, given the passage of time, if anything, would, would be a rerun election. But even then, I think that you've got to have a new, or you should have a new showing of majority support, given so much time has lapsed before an election even goes forward. Because as you, as you know, Peter, you know, to the extent an employer recognizes a union that doesn't have majority support, that's its own ULP. Well, and I guess the employees, they could get 30% to have an election, just a yep. simple RC election. Yep. That's the other puzzling part about Semex, and we haven't, I've had a lot of discussions, haven't done too many episodes on it, but you know, the, the board coincidental to Semex the day before issued their, their revised or re well, it's kind of reintroduction of the ambush election rules, which don't go into effect until December. But if you plot out a time frame, assuming that goes into effect under Semex, the, if the employer gets a demand for recognition, they have two weeks to file an RM petition and then you go into the board's post-December, you go into the board's new ambush election rules or quickie elections, whatever whatever you want to call them. You're still looking at a five, maybe six-week process, right? Whereas if a union were to file just an RC, once the ambush election rules are in place, you're looking at three to four weeks. And the question then remains, are the unions going to stay with RCs or are they going to go with demand recognition? Because the time frame is totally different. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it really is another interesting question, and it's just an interesting strategic point to consider. I really don't know what they're going to end up doing. I mean, frankly, too, Peter, just taking a step back, we've been watching petitions the last few weeks, and there haven't been nearly as as many RM petitions filed as I thought that there might be. Well, yeah, I've only seen a couple, but and, and it goes back to that problem for the unions, even, you know, Post-December, once the new rules go into place, it's faster for them to go with the RC and then go back to Semex for a bargaining order, yeah, right? I think I think that that's right. And we've actually seen, I think the day after Semex came out, the following Monday, at least one union requested a Semex bargaining order out of an RC case. Yeah, Seth, that- Seth Goldstein proudly announced that on LinkedIn, <laughs> Trader Joe's United. Yep. Yeah, so... Are you hearing a lot from employers, like getting questions, and and or are they even paying attention to this? No, this has freaked out a lot of people, particularly currently non-unionized employers. You know, folks in the retail space are quite worried about it. Folks in the warehousing space are, are a little bit less worried, although they are worried, just because they have more familiarity with the organizing process. And then, you know, folks in the franchise restaurant space in particular, this has really blown their hair back. So we had a lot of questions about it. Well, it is, it's a significant change. And I think it just puts the pendulum further back in terms of when employers are needing to inoculate their employees. That's really right. And I think you need to go far beyond at this point, the classic, you know, tips and bow training that we all do with managers. I think you've got to really engage in early education with your rank and file folks about what a union card actually is and what it means. Because, you know, as, as is typical, the, the organizer that you see down on the corner that's talking to their folks through Signal now or other, you know, direct messaging communication says something to the effect of, 
sign up to learn more. And that's not exactly what a card is. It can be bought now as a showing of majority support. So I think it's important to educate your folks about what those are and what they can do. Are you seeing a lot more salting going on? It's hard to say. I mean, we've not gotten a lot of salting-related charges. I can't even remember the last one that I got. Every once in a while, you see a report in Bloomberg about it. I think the Daily Report did a long expose about that three, four months ago. But I think that was specific to one particular employer. Um, But now, you know, we might see a resurgence of salting. Yeah, we're we're seeing, and when I say we see, it's not just with clients, but we also see it in the press a lot where, you know, they, they salted at Amazon. They've been salting, of course, at Starbucks. They've been salting forever at construction companies. That's kind of where they originated, but the DSA, which is democratic socialists of America have put together a salting training program. In fact, I had a couple guests a few weeks ago on talking about the teamsters in the DSA teaming up to train salts. So it's kind of coming back in fashion, I guess. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is the the DSA doing it because they know that unions are kind of a voting block that they need to get the green agenda and all that stuff. Well, I think that that's really right. And I mean, one of the things that we've been talking to a lot of employers about, particularly those who employ younger folks, is I think there's a significant generational shift between mine as an older millennial and and Gen Z and whatever the one after that is. I think they call themselves Gen Alpha or something like that. Right. But they're very, very involved in social causes and look at work in a very different way, I think. You know, it's not a paycheck nine to five situation anymore. They want to, in a lot of ways, hold their employer's feet to the fire to ensure the employer is, is going along with the social causes they believe in. And I think that that's given unions and, and to your point, salts a real entry for at a lot of these places where they really wouldn't have been paid as much attention to previously, I think. Well, it's been an interesting shift. The Gen Z's, are, I think, are kind of the tip of the spear with a lot of the organizing going on. But just the change in American approval of unions has shifted since the pandemic quite a bit. It started gaining ground in the in the teens. After I think they they dipped down in two thousand nine to the lowest point ever, but they're they've come back in terms of popularity. And of course, we're seeing the Hollywood strike, the UAW strike, and I just posted a poll that was, uh, Reuters did. The majority of Americans are supporting the strikers, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Yeah, it really is. I mean, to your point, I think the pandemic and the requirement of of essential workers coming into work really supercharged organizing in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of tragic reports came out of of folks getting sick and passing away on the shop floor. And and that really gave unions, in my view, a significant opportunity to say, we can protect you here. And they've taken that and run with it. Now, you know, with respect to polling, I think it's interesting because there was another report that came out the other day that you probably saw, which suggested that while most folks are viewing unions positively and the strikers positively, there's a majority of, of working class Americans who still would rather not be in a union themselves. Right, right. <laughs> so there's a bit of a disconnect there, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I have a friend who's been on the podcast a couple of times. She, she used it as the vanilla ice cream poll. In that um, most people like vanilla ice cream, but it's not it's not the flavor they're going to order for themselves. Mm-hmm. No, but I think that that's right. You know, I mean, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see how 
this next year shakes out because as, as you know, it's a significant contract year, not just for the big three. They just got wrapped up with UPS and there are a lot of right. other negotiations coming down the line. So we'll, we'll see what they end up getting out of it. I'm, I'm quite curious to see how the big threes labor issues play out. Yeah. We've been posting a lot of articles uh, daily. As a matter of fact, in the evening, we'll do, you know, daily wrap up of all the news stories and it's interesting. And I, I haven't gotten the answer to this question, which is the targeted strike, which is to pull, you know, at first three plants out, one for each of the automakers, causing the layoffs of other workers. Are those other workers then entitled to unemployment? That is a really good question and one that we've been puzzling through as well. And it's I think it's complicated further by the fact that the UAW has gone out and said, we'll take care of those folks. And it's it's right. unclear what, what they mean by that. And so I you know, I'm not sure that they're gonna be able to get unemployment or not. I'm sure well, they'll they'll apply for it. They ought to. Michigan, they came out on Friday, the day that the UAW walked, and basically said they're gonna help as many people as they can. They did not specify the UAW strikers or those UAW members who are part of the negotiations, but they said anybody affected suppliers, et cetera. They left that door open. I have not gotten an answer back from the unemployment departments at Ohio or Missouri yet. So I'm, mm. yeah, I tried reaching out yesterday. Couldn't get anybody, but it'll be interesting because my hypothesis is that if in fact they do allow the UAW members who are laid off due to their brothers and sisters going out on strike, that the taxpayers or the states will be subsidizing the strike. That's a, that's, a, that's a very good point and something I hadn't really considered until you just said it. Well, so, the know, Biden administration people. is looking at, at giving financial aid as well. Mm. So that means it's back to bailout 2.0. Yeah, right. Which, what a mess. Yeah. So you mentioned a few minutes ago, back to Semex for a minute, that you're still seeing a lot of RC petitions, not too many RMs. And I haven't seen the numbers for September yet, August, unions were winning their, I think it was 78% of the RC or certification elections. Mm-hmm. They're still winning a majority, which then begs the question of why do we need to change these rules? Well, that, that's a very good point. And I think you remember Kaplan really got that, got down to business with that in his dissent and said, you know, the, this has worked for 50 years. And it's, it's obviously working very well for organizers now. What, what is the point in changing the rules? And, and even taking a step back, you know, as Member Kaplan, I think, argued very persuasively, there was no reason to change the rule at all. It's almost a certainty that a bargaining order would have issued in Semex. So the board right. really took a question that wasn't before it and decided to answer that question anyway. Well, I think you, you kind of hit it when you mentioned Abruzzo wanted the Joy Silk doctrine mm-hmm. imposed, which is card check. Essentially. Yep. yep. Right. You know, they, they couldn't get card check in the PRO Act or an EFCA back in whatever 2009 that was. Right. And basically, Semex has, has instituted a version of that now. It's not quite card check, but it's it's pretty darn close. Well, let me ask you, is there is there another way that she could go after Joy Silk through a different decision? That's interesting. You know, strategically, I'm not sure that she would, just in that she's the, the general counsel's office, I think, has really gotten what it was looking for here. Mm. So, you know, perhaps, but I think, you know, as I was reading the other day, we've got to remember there's still a lot of stuff left on her big long list that she's looking to overturn. 
Yeah. You know, what's surprising about Semex is she had gone after the ban on captive audience meetings as well as the changing is the TriCast decision, which was the changing on how the relationship changes or how it's explained to workers. And I was surprised Mm -hmm. that neither of those made it in Semex. I was a little bit surprised too, frankly. I wonder if that was strategic from the majority in that they're making such a seismic shift with respect to how elections are run that they were just going to leave the mandatory meetings piece and, and try cast for another day. Because I think I think in at least one footnote, they might have specified as much. But I mean, that that brings about an interesting question too, which which is really the what we're seeing as a, in a real erosion of 8C and employers' free speech rights. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't understand that. Employers do have the right to speak as long as they don't violate the rules. And, I, you know, when I saw Bruzo's things, I, I don't like doing, quote, captive audience meetings anyway because they're, they're more classes. And if somebody doesn't want to come to class, then that's fine. Well, here's the other question with the captive audience meeting. Sorry, I kind of strayed for a minute. The captive audience meeting ban, there are so many ULPs that have been filed since she first announced it. Yeah, there's numerous employers that have gotten charges from it, some big names too. I'm wondering if they're just going to, as you said, wait for another decision. I suspect that that's got to be right. I mean, all of those cases are bubbling up out there. And we've seen, to your point, a bunch of ULPs, excuse me, filed on mandatory meetings. So I think it's really just a matter of time before that shoe drops too. And then, you know, I mean, I think the other one, in my view, that's going to be really interesting is. What happens with employers' ability to control their electronic messaging systems like email and Slack channels and all other mechanisms by which they communicate with their employees? Uh, You know, to the extent we see a return to purple communications, you know, that is going to be another mechanism by which unions, I think, will be able to say, this is a ULP, the maintenance of such a policy is so damaging that we ought to get a bargaining order stemming therefrom because it's it's restricted us from communicating with our potential bargaining unit members. Yeah, you might want to um, go back a little bit in history with the purple communications because this is this is swung back and forth and mm-hmm. as labor law often does. But purple communications was in the Obama era, right? Yep, that's right. And then the Trump board reversed it, if I recall. They did in a, in a case called Caesars. And Caesars is still good law for the time being, but uh, Caesars is, is on the general counsel's list. Yeah, I guess the question with that is, is there any good law from that era in the present day? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, you know, I think they're really just running down the list and, and checking things off. So there, there are more shoes to drop, particularly now that member Wilcox has been confirmed to another term. So you have a super majority of three Democrats and currently one Republican on the board. Yeah, I was going to ask you, so, you know, the big thing with Semex and, well, a number of cases they dropped right before her term expired. And I'm not, I guess in terms of she's been reconfirmed. So there's really been no pause in the board, right? There's like the big thing was perhaps she's not going to get confirmed. So we got to get all these cases out and now she's been confirmed. So that's, that's right. So, you know, I think there was a worry that, that there would be a holdup um, because, you know, to, to talk a little bit of inside baseball, it's typical that 
board members are nominated in pairs, you know, one Republican mm. and one Democrat. So I think that there was some some thought that a Republican would get nominated along with member Wilcox. And, and for whatever reason, that has not happened. Um, we're aware that there, there are folks that are being looked at currently um, and might get nominated soon. Um, but that that's still an open question on the Republican side. That, that's right. Yes. Excuse me. On the Republican side. So for the listeners, again, who may be in HR, not familiar with the National Labor Relations Board, independent agency, five members appointed by the president of the United States. The majority is typically of the president's party. So you've got currently a Democrat in the White House. So you've got three on the majority side. There's a vacancy in one of the Republican positions, right? That's right. And technically, similar to, I guess, acting Secretary of Labor, Julie Sue, this could drag on forever. It really could. Now, I mean, Senator Murkowski out of Alaska did come forward, I think, about a week ago and said, I've received assurances that a Republican will be nominated soon. And that was in, that assurance was incumbent upon receiving my vote for member Wilcox. So there, there are things in the works, at least that's that's what folks are saying, but just has not been announced just yet. Interesting. So it'll be somebody announces they may have somebody in that seat. And I guess when they're in the minority and they're going to vote on specific cases one way or write the dissents, the board can function without another Republican sitting on there, right? It, it certainly can. And the, the critical part about member Wilcox being renominated and then reconfirmed is that as a typical matter of practice, the board will not change precedent without at least three members voting to do so. And so, you know, there was, I think, at least a glimmer of hope in the management community that to the extent member Wilcox was not reconfirmed, we would have a bit of a pause on all of these swings to the pendulum, to use your phrase. Um, obviously, that's not how things have turned out. Yeah, we've got a bunch of stuff that may be coming down the pike fairly soon. Yes. I mean, all we can say is is stay tuned, really. I think it's going to be another bumpy year or two, um, and, and probably longer than that unless there is a change in administration. Which that remains an open question as well. Yes. It's one of those things where you kind of hope for the best, prepare for the worst. I think that that's really right. And so, you know, we've been having proactive discussions with our clients about what might be coming next, what they ought to watch out for, you know, if there are any ways that they can sort of guard against the, the headwinds that we think will continue to blow. But I mean, and then you have a decision like Semex, which sort of blows everyone out of the water. And that's something that you really can't plan for. Well, part of this too is, you know, your clients and a lot of other law firms, they have fairly astute HR people or ops people who will contact you and they have questions. It's those small employers that just don't stay attuned to this stuff and who oftentimes you see in the labor press. That's exactly right. I mean, it's it's really the the small to mid-sized employers who, you know, are, are operating on a smaller budget who just not have the ability to retain counsel or pay attention to this stuff because they're doing their best to run their business that really can get turned upside down, particularly by this labor board. Yeah. And a lot of the, a lot of the cases that come down, you see are smaller employers. There's just a smaller employer that went to jail for (laughs) ignoring the board and then ignoring the courts. Yes. And boy, what an aggressive remedy that was. But, you know, I think that that was a smaller employer who was not represented. And I think that they ignored ultimately several different court orders and, the Seventh Circuit finally had enough. 
So, yeah. I, but I think that they're out. I think that they were in and then got out just about the next day after they said, okay, we will comply. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, that made the labor press. So yeah. everybody's like, sure. oh, don't do that. Yeah, my, uh, my wife is a therapist, and even she heard about it. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. She was like, holy crap, these guys went to jail. Yeah. <laughs> well, is anything out there on the horizon that the listeners should be aware of? Anything more coming that we're sure? Well, you know, I think that there are a few things. Uh, apart from what we've talked about already, the, the one that I think is top of mind for a lot of wary employers is whether there will be a return of the quote-unquote wine garden right in non-unionized work settings. And, and to back up a second, in a unionized context, to the extent that a bargaining unit employee is going to go into a meeting where discipline might be doled out, they're entitled to have a representative sit in with them. That is currently not the law in the non-unionized context, although there are several cases out there right now where the general counsel has said, this employee, despite not being a member of a union, was entitled to a representative during this meeting where discipline could have been doled out. And I think that that will be a very big change to the extent that that goes the way that we think it probably will. So that, too, is one of those seesaw issues. And I've, I've been around long enough after I left the union movement where I think it was the Clinton board instituted Weingarten rights for non-union workers. Not a lot happened during that era and then the bush board reversed it or bush two board reversed it yep and that's one of those things where if i'm talking to an employer it's not that big of a deal and the and the basic weingarten right is that is as you just mentioned if an employee gets called into an office during an investigatory interview then that employee is entitled to representation well in as a former union rep that representation is only there to be a witness, not an advocate during that meeting. So right. for a non-union employer, my position has always been, if they want to have some, some coworker come in with them, that's fine. Now, my question to you, <laughs> I wasn't planning on asking a, a setup question, but just going through that and with the current board, if they extend Weingarten rights to the non-union employees across America, and somebody says, I want the steelworkers rep to be my witness. Do you have to let a third party into the, the office meeting? <laughs> that is a bit of a brain teaser. I mean, I, you know, my knee-jerk reaction would be no, but then perhaps you get an interesting new ULP under a different theory, and then you've got, similar to the, the new OSHA rule that I think is going to be challenged, the ability of a uh, you know, a right. third party who's not with the employer at all to go and walk around the facility. Right. And so, you know, my, but to take a step back too, you know, I, I get the general idea that it's generally not a big deal to have a neutral witness in an in a investigatory interview. I think, though, that, that employers still will want to think about that on a case-by-case -case basis, even if they're being prophylactic, just because Certain investigatory interviews, as you know, can be quite sensitive and, and oftentimes confidential. And so I think the control of information piece can sometimes be very important and might um, counsel against bringing in somebody that doesn't absolutely have to be there. Well, and it's, it's an investigative meeting where the employee has reason to believe that they could be disciplined for whatever they're answering. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to call somebody in when you've already made a decision meeting That's out right. the discipline. 
And that gets lost on a lot of employers. And I think in part because unionized employers typically just call union reps into whatever they're doing with employees, right. period. However, with the Weingart rights, even in a unionized environment, you don't necessarily, it's up to the employee to use those rights or to ask for a rep, Password. right? You don't need to broadcast it on your TV screens or monitors. That also gets lost on a lot of folks. That's right. You know, I mean, I think as we were talking about earlier, you know, you've had this supercharging of, of organizing the last couple of years. And I think in part, that's because of the explosion of social media, particularly yeah. TikTok. And, you know, I think that one of the things that unions have gotten really good at is, is really advertising what rights purportedly are. And so I would suspect to the extent we get a wine garden style decision, that's going to be all over TikTok and social media and, and whatever the kids will be using next. And so these folks will really have just a much better sense of what they're allowed to do or what they're allowed to ask for. And then they're going to get the ULP when they don't get what they want. That's, that's right. Yeah. And I guess the other component with Weingarten is that if, for example, and I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate on the union for the union side at the moment, but mm -hmm. if I were to look at section seven, it says representative of your own choosing, right? So why wouldn't I ask for the steel worker rep? Mm -hmm. Why should I be de denied that? Sure. I mean, you know, that, and that, that just gets into a really tricky question about off-duty access and, and access issues more generally. You know, right. and I think, I, and that's all in a little bit of a flux too. You know, the, the decision itself is escaping me, but the, the off-duty access rules have essentially changed significantly in the past six months. So, you know, perhaps we'll see that as a test case in the next little while. Somebody asking for a steel worker to come in in a non-unionized context to sit next to them in an investigatory interview. Well, and, it, and then it goes back to the point, do you need to have that person as the investigation continues, do you need that person to interview or to interview that person before you meet out the discipline? Because again, they're not entitled to it if there's discipline. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the tension there is most attorneys outside of the NLRB context, just thinking about it from a Title VII perspective as an example, on the plaintiff side, will make a huge stink if an employer on the defense side of a, of a Title VII complaint did not interview the defendant employee before doling out discipline. And so while you might be able to get around this from the NLRB context, that might open you up to, to liability under other areas of law. That's a good point. Yep. Well, Carrie, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this stuff. I enjoy having discussions where we kind of go outside the box, so to speak. No, this was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for having me, Peter. I really enjoyed it. Well, I will send you the link once this is posted. And for the listeners, do you mind sharing where you are and not necessarily physically right now, but where you are and where you're based out of and how to get sure, home? Sure, yeah. So, yep. So, I'm a, my name is Kerry Burke. I'm a partner at Sightparth Shaw. My office is based in Atlanta and I'm a, in the labor management relations group. And I also do employment litigation. I'll include some links as well. Great. Awesome. Thanks, well, thanks again, Peter. This was awesome. So that was Carrie Burke, a partner with the law firm Safarth Shaw out of their Atlanta office. And as I mentioned, I'm going to leave some links under the audio portion of this episode. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Reach me on LinkedIn. You can also call us at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great week.
Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.